Uh, we're all broken, uh, by the way. So maybe that goes that should go without saying, but I, I don't want to assume. We all come in here and you all mostly dress up nicer than you do the rest of the week. Some of you dress up nice all week and so you dress down for Sunday. But some of you guys, this is the only time you wear long pants all week. We put socks on or we sort of dress ourselves up in our Sunday best um, to come and gather. Uh, and so when we do that, there's a chance that we might assume that we're not all broken and that we have it all together. And we're a group of people who have figured it all out. But that's not the case. God's church is a pe- group of people um, around the world who have come to discover that we do not have it figured out, um, but that God is merciful. That's why he sent Jesus. And like Eric said at our announcement time, Jesus is alive and his spirit's here with us when we gather. And he helps us through his written word. And as, as we gather and we do all this together, we're in this together. God knows you stumble and fall. He knows you've stumbled and fallen this week. Psalm 103 says, he remembers our frame. He knows we're dust. He loves us still. And that's why he sent his son to save us all. So these are all great reasons to say Amen this morning, right? Amen. Well, turn to Romans chapter 10 in your Bible. It's in the New Testament. If you're still getting familiar with the Bible, the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of the life and the ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then you get Acts and then you get Romans. So, and by the way, it's never a cheat to go look at the table of contents. No shame there. Romans chapter 10. We're in the third Sunday here of a series that we've been in for, uh, like I said, this is the third week. Um, And we call it, we're calling it Summer is for Salvation. And the reason is this, is um, it's because this is what God has called us to be about as a church. This is what God is about in the world, is saving sinners. God saves sinners. And so as we enter into the summer, which can often be a time for us of uh, going on autopilot and and just some R&R and downtime, Eric a couple of weeks ago encouraged us, actually summer affords us all kinds of great opportunity to engage our neighbors, to engage our community, to to use some of that summertime space um, to proclaim Christ and to to be the church that God uses to save sinners. And so in order to sort of stir this up going into the summer, Eric started us off with a sobering message that we do this because ultimately we all answer to God. And and he he preached from uh, Hebrews 9 that says, it is appointed for every man to die once and then to face judgment. We will all die. Death has a 100% success record so far until Jesus comes back. And we can put it out of mind or we can be sobered by that and say what sort of big ultimate questions ought we to ask in light of that? And if we have a maker that created us for purposes and we don't know what those are, and maybe we come to discover that we are living out of step with the purposes for which our creator made us, that ought to create an urgency in us to know who he is what he's called us to be. Um, and secondly, last week, Junior preached. This is how God saves sinners. Ephesians 2 says this, we were all born dead in our sin, physically alive, but dead in our sin, just following the course of this world with hearts by nature that are bent inward and self-serving, not others serving, especially not Godward, humble, bowing the knee to our creator, but in the heart there's this desire that we all have to call our own shots and and make our own way. But God in his mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, every time he saves a sinner, here's what happens. He makes dead people alive together with Christ. 
by grace you've been saved. If you have been saved, it was God's grace that did it. I want to show you a picture. A few years ago, I was at my mom's house back in Colorado, and I dug this out of a box and took a picture. And a couple of weeks ago, in God's providence, I wasn't looking for it, I stumbled across it again. And that's me on the left. I used to be Ken C., as you can see right there. Now I go by Kenny. Usually it's the other way around. Um, but uh, that's me and my friend Scott M. Scott McMahon, I think his name was. And that picture is the only picture I have taken from the weekend that I believe God made me alive with Christ. Fourth grade. Boys Brigade Camp. I don't know what the name of the campground was. Um, but let me back up. A year before that, uh, up until that point, my Sunday mornings looked like Cheerios and cartoons while my mom and dad slept in. Neither of my parents were raised to know the Lord, part of a church. They hadn't really heard the gospel. They didn't know much about the Bible. Um, and when I was in the fourth grade, my piano teacher, Betty Patterson, for whom I'll, I'll be eternally grateful she was this dear older woman, taught me piano out of her house. Her, her main way of serving in, in the, her church was weekly. She met with a few other women to stuff and fold bulletins every week. And, uh, but aside from that, um, she invited my parents uh, to come to church. The first Sunday, Evie Free Fullerton in 1980 was moving into their new sanctuary that, that looks like a big Pizza Hut roof like this. <laughs> they used to call that the rapture hatch. Anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they still do, but their dedication Sunday, my piano teacher handed my parents an invitation and said, why don't you come? And they did. And so all of a sudden, one Sunday, I'm not watching cartoons, I'm plopped into Sunday school and they're sitting in church and Chuck Swindoll, who was the pastor, preaching pastor at the time, if you ever heard Chuck preach, um, he would open the word and read it and explain it in plain language and compelling language and, and with, with heart and affection and passion for Christ. And my parents had never heard anything like this. And suddenly we're going back every week. And shortly after that, they, my, each of my parents uh, came to faith in Christ. And from that point on, it was Sunday school on Sunday mornings and no more cartoons. I had to pack it all in on Saturday morning. And week in and week out, I was plopped in Sunday school and Good News Club, which was for the second service because my parents went to the service and then went to adult Sunday school. So I had to be around for two services. And this man named Russ, I've long since lost, forgotten his last name, but he regularly taught at, at, uh, at Good News Club. And he was the speaker for this weekend of Boys Brigade Camp, sort of like the Boy Scouts, but sort of adapted for just our church context. And that weekend on a Saturday night under the stars, as you can just picture sort of the, you know, uh, quintessential amphitheater, campfire behind him, pine trees around. I'm in the fourth grade. And he explained to me what he had probably for a year in Good News Club been explaining to me. What Junior explained last week. Apart from God, we're dead in our sin. And our sin separates us from God. None of us is righteous. But good news, God knows that. And he had a plan from before creation to show himself and his grace by redeeming people out of their sin and that Jesus died for me. And he invited the boys and the dads in that amphitheater to respond and say, God, forgive me in Jesus' name. And I sitting there in that amphitheater on a Saturday night when he said sinner, I knew that included me. Already in fourth grade, I had a track record and I knew that I was only getting started. 
my elementary school years, every single year, my desk was in the corner facing the opposite way of everyone else in our class, and our teacher called it isolation. I don't think you can do that anymore legally in school, humiliate kids like that. I got over it, but um, I don't know if my mom did. She would go to like back to school nights and, all right, everyone sit at your ch- kid's desk. <laughs> She's sitting over here like trying to write down the notes. So I, I knew as a fourth grader, I didn't know the depths of my sin as I do as a 45-year-old, but I knew and I prayed. I said, God, forgive me because of Jesus. I believe the word that he explained to me. I believe that that's when God made me alive together with Christ. God saved me by grace through faith. So last week, Junior said, only God can do that. But here's the thing. He's chosen to use us to do that. God makes people alive by using people and using his word. And that's what he's called us to be a part of. It's a privilege, not just a duty. Here's what this Sunday today is about. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. That's Romans 10, 17, which we'll read here in just a second. So we're going to read 13 through 17, and I'm even going to dip back into the rest of chapter 10 um, and consider how is it that God then makes us alive? How does he use his church to be part of this process of God saving sinners by grace? Let me read and pray, and we'll move on. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? Why would anyone do that? Paul says. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let me pray as we hear the word of Christ right now that we'd hear from the heart. Uh, Lord, we need this word this morning. We, your church, need this word to be encouraged and for us to be be given confidence uh, that even though this feels risky to be sent out and to be your mouthpiece to a a, a lost world of the good news of the gospel that you go with us and you raise the dead and this is your plan. Pray you'd encourage us in this task this morning. And Lord, I pray for those in this room We read this morning, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ is not born of Christ. Lord, I pray that anyone here this morning who does not have the spirit of Christ, that you would make them alive today. We believe that you you can do that and desire to, and we ask that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, three points. Number one is that faith is where new life begins. That yes, we are saved by God, by grace, but he does so through faith. Faith is where new life begins. At the beginning and end of Paul's letter, um, he bookends his letter by making this very clear. This is what it's all about. Listen, at the beginning, he says of himself, I, Paul, I make it my ambition. This is my calling given by God, he said, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake 
of his name among all the nations, to bring about the obedience of faith, to be used by God to bring people into what he calls the obedience of faith. We'll get to it in a second. And then at the end of the letter, having explained this message of the gospel through which the word of Christ, through which we are saved, he says it again. All this, this good news has been disclosed now through the prophetic writings and made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. Here's what he means by the obedience of faith. Not just one single solitary decision on a particular day to place my faith in Christ and then move on, although that's part of it. But that's only the beginning. The obedience of faith is not just obeying by putting my trust in Christ, but then the whole life that follows that is lived by faith in the Son of God day in and day out until Jesus returns. So it's the coming to life through faith But then it's the whole life that's marked by fruit of faith and living um, by faith in God. It's the whole, the beginning and what follows. And Paul says, this is what I, I desire to bring about, is this obedience of faith in people's lives. Here's what this faith entails when it begins And in fact, not just at the beginning, but then throughout the rest of life, this is what this sincere faith in Christ alone entails. Three things that we see in this chapter. If we back up to the beginning, knowing the truth, believing the truth, and submitting to the truth. Look at the first few verses of chapter 10. See, what Paul's talking about here is he's grieved in chapter 9. He's grieved because so many of his fellow Jews who saw and heard Jesus even teach and perform miracles and who knew about his crucifixion, about his resurrection, had still continued in their unbelief and their rejection of Christ. And he was grieved over this. And in the first four verses of chapter 10, as he describes what's gone wrong and why have they rejected Christ, it helps us understand what real saving faith is. And it starts with knowing the truth. Faith begins with knowing the truth. Look at verses one and two. He says, here's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they may be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but underline this, but not according to knowledge. So they feel something about God. There's some sort of passion or desire to know God or some sort of Godward something, a zeal, but he says it's actually not according to knowledge, which means you can sincerely be wrong about God. And being sincerely wrong will not lead to faith. And responding to God appropriately according to who he is and how, what he has done to save us. Notice the, the truth in particular that they're ignorant of, verse 3. He says, ignorant of the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own and they didn't submit to God's righteousness. So twice, in the righteousness of God, God's righteousness, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. So I don't want us to be ignorant of what Paul means by God's righteousness. Here's what he means. There is a righteousness which no one will be saved apart from. In other words, one day as you stand before God as judge, you must stand righteous or you will not stand at all. 
God is worthy of our complete trust, our complete obedience and faith and devotion and delight, not just because he made us, but because he is infinitely worthy of our worship. Psalm 145 says, great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He is infinitely worthy of our worship and our adoration and our complete trust. And if you were to live your whole life 100% devoted, trusting, obedient, faithful, that would be a righteous life that you owed God. Bad news. None of us have lived that life. Not one. Romans says there is none righteous, not one. No one seeks God. So we need another righteousness. And God had this plan all along. He would come. He would become a man. God the Son would step into history and take on a human nature. And Hebrews says, be born in every way like us and yet without sin. And at every step of Jesus' life, in thought, attitude, word, action, he obeyed the will of the Father every day, every minute, until his final breath and his last last stunning act of obedience to the will of the Father was laying his life down as a ransom for sinners and saying, I will take the guilt they deserve for your glory, God. And that's all finished. And he was raised from the dead because the grave had no hold on him as the only righteous one. And it's because of all this that's happened in the past that God now offers us terms of peace. And here's how he does it. He says, I will provide a righteousness of God from myself. You can't establish one, I'll provide one. But you must receive it on my terms. That's what Paul's talking about here, that his fellow Jews who have rejected Christ, they're ignorant of this righteousness of God that they need and they're seeking to establish their own. So real faith begins with knowing the truth. That means we need to, 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 to understand this cognitively. But not just cognitively, we need to believe that truth. Look at verse four. It moves on and says, great news, Christ is the end of the law. In other words, all you're striving to keep the law that we've already failed at and we're going to fail at this next week, Christ is the end of that striving to make God pleased with you because he's already accomplished it, Jesus. And here's how he is, to everyone who believes, not just everyone who knows, but everyone who believes, he says. Look at verse nine. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, that means sincerely, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified. That word means declared righteous. Christ's righteousness, this righteousness of God, God sees that as your righteousness. It comes as you believe in what he's provided. And when you believe in what he's provided, this is what this looks like. You submit to it. That's what he says in verse 3 ignorant of these things, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. They tried to establish their own instead of his terms. What are God's terms? How do you submit to the righteousness of God? If God says, here it is, it's offered to you, how do you submit to it? Verse 13 tells us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That tells us what kind of calling he's talking about. 
It's the kind of calling that says, help! (laughs) It's a helpless call. It admits, I need a righteousness that I can never produce. And he says, if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that's how you submit to the righteousness of God. And it includes repentance, even though Paul doesn't use this word repent here. Jesus sometimes is the way he called people to faith was by saying, repent, turn from your sin to me. But you can't have this sort of faith without repentance. Because calling for help is not, God, just forgive me for my sin that I still want to live in. It's forgive me and deliver me from this sin that I now see is death. To think that you can... Trust in Christ without turning from your sin is like thinking you can make a U-turn on a highway and start driving, on the north, driving north without leaving the southbound lane. You can do that. You're going to get in an accident though, right? To turn north is simultaneously to leave turning south, right? In the same way here, calling on the name of the Lord is to turn from sin and turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. And so faith comes from knowing this truth and believing it with the heart and then submitting to it, yielding and saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. It's a hymn we sing. And the desire to see more and more people do that is what got Paul up in the morning. It was his driving ambition. It's what kept him going on days where he was in chains, in prison, for weeks and months on end, with hope. He wanted others to come to faith like this. Is this what our heart beats for? If not, that's where we need to start this morning. Lord, give me a heart that desires other people to come to faith in this way. Do you want your brothers and your sisters your mom and your dad, the children that you're raising in your home, the students you teach in your classroom, your fellow cubicle mates in your office or your boss or your coach, do you want this for them? Paul did. And if this is what we want, here's how it's going to happen. God is going to use a message and he's going to use messengers. That's number two point. God uses a message. Faith comes, verse 17, through hearing. We'll come back to that. And hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ. The word of Christ is both words about Christ. So who he is, he's God, become man. What he's done, he's, come, he's been born and lived and shown his divine power in signs and wonders and authoritative teaching that under, uh, underscore his, his claim to be both God and man. It includes what he did, what he taught, how he died, why he died, why he rose again. It includes what is coming when he comes again. This is all the word of Christ, the word about Christ. But it's also more than that. I think the word of Christ is also the very word of Christ that he came proclaiming. When Christ came, he came saying things like this, repent, believe in me and the one who sent me. 
receive me. Anyone who receives me receives the one who sent me. Christ came calling and urging people to respond. And that's part of the word of Christ. It's the word about him, but it's also the call to respond. Look at this. This is J.I. Packer again. We read from something from him earlier, Walt and I didn't compare notes, but um, perfect timing here. Godly man in his 90s has written for decades uh, about the Bible and knowing God uh, truly. And he says this about um, the message. He says, proclaiming Christ is a task appointed to all God's people everywhere. And it's the task of communicating a message from the creator to rebel mankind. The message begins with information and ends with an invitation. The information concerns God's work of making his son a perfect savior for sinners. The invitation is God's summons to mankind to come to the savior and find life. It's not a soft ask. God commands all men everywhere to repent and promises forgiveness and restoration to all who do. I needed to hear this again this week to be reminded that the gospel doesn't, being proclaimed doesn't just end with the proclamation of the, the facts and the information. What Jesus did, that's so important. We need to be able to explain to people and show them from God's word why Jesus is the one and only perfect Savior. So we need to know the information. And, and have boldness to share it. But to keep it at the level of information and not move toward the point of invitation is leaving um, an unfinished gospel message. Does that make sense? It's not the way Jesus proclaimed the message. It's not the way Paul proclaimed the message. There was an invitation. Even that word invitation can be a little bit soft, right? Right? I think of invitation, I think of wedding invitation or a party invitation with an RSVP in it and a little yes box and a no box. And please, would you be so kind? Respondez-vous s'il vous plaît, right? Isn't that the French? Um, would you just let me know if you'll be coming or not? I mean, I do really want you to come, but I understand if it's an inconvenience or you have something going on. And so I mainly just am concerned that you let me know so we have a head count at the table, right? no. The gospel invitation as it comes from Jesus' lips and Paul's lips isn't indifferent to whether or not you respond to God's uh, grace through faith. Jesus says, believe. He doesn't say believe or not, whatever. Come to me or not. Receive me or not. He cares. The gospel is not take it or leave it. The gospel call is take it. Period. We have an opinion when we share the gospel, a preference for you that you would not harden your heart to it, but that you would respond positively. Paul said things like this, we implore you. That means we plead with you on behalf of God. Be reconciled to God. Paul wasn't indifferent when it came to people fleeing the wrath and the judgment of God to come when you can do that by running into his welcoming, gracious arms in the name of Jesus today. We need to be bold. I think this is where we really, as Christians, need to pray for boldness and courage because it's so easy. Even some of, for some of us, it's not even easy to have the boldness to get to the information level of just telling people about Christ. But for sure, as soon as we move it to the level of invitation and asking someone, so how about you? What, what, what will you do with this Jesus? What do you believe about this Jesus? Would you trust him? That gets into awkward territory, doesn't it? That makes family holidays awkward. 
That makes break room lunchtime potentially strained. And we can be fearful of that and keep it at the information level. The sad thing is, is I don't think any of us feel uh, uh, the least bit uncomfortable oftentimes urging people to all sorts of other things that are so insignificant in comparison to this. We do it on Facebook all the time. I do it. You've never been to Burger Parlor in Fullerton? You have to go to Burger Parlor. You ha- I'll implore you on behalf of Burger Parlor, go to Burger Parlor. You've never tried poke? Go try poke. You've got to try it. You have to try CrossFit. You have to try essential oils. You have to on and on and on because these things we've come to believe in and we're, we're, we become spokespeople for and we're unashamedly bold in saying, you've got to try this. And then, shame on us, it comes to the gospel. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can feel like a junior high junior higher doing a fundraiser for their band trying to convince you to sell tchotchkes and scented candles to raise money for our upcoming trip and I know you don't need it but would you just please be nice and do me a favor (laughs) the gospel are the words of life eternal life the gospel is an appeal to run from the worst thing ever to the greatest one ever God And this God actually wants to forgive your sin. He wants you to come back to him. He wants you to know the joy of obedience and walking in his ways. As Junior put it last week, he has riches of grace that he wants you to experience and he wants you to experience it and he wants you to invite others to swim in the same pool. Last week, Junior talked about his friend Daniel who the first time Junior came to him and sat and begged him on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, Daniel. He said, I'm not ready. Maybe you're not ready this morning. That's what you're thinking right now. Hold on, I'm not ready for this. I see where you're headed. You're gonna ask me. You're gonna implore me on behalf of Christ. You're right. Maybe you think you're not ready because you understand that the Bible is saying to call in the name of the Lord to be saved means I need to leave some things. I need to turn my back on sin that I still feel really good about, I really like. I want to beg you to take God at his word that what you love and are clinging to and you feel like you don't want to let go of is death. And what God calls you to is life. I want to implore you this morning on behalf of God, be reconciled. Or maybe your reason was Daniel's reason. You feel that you're not worthy to come to God. You've got to clean yourself up first. And I guess if that's you, I would want to say, I I think you missed something we just talked about here. Verse 2, Paul's fellow Jews, or verse 3, seeking to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. You can't establish your own. If you feel unworthy of God's grace and forgiveness, you are as ready as you could be to receive him. And I want to invite you to do that right now. You don't need magic words. You don't need to say something in a particular way. You need to express to God the belief and the desire in your heart to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ alone, to forgive your sin, and ask his spirit to come in and and help you live in a new life. I want to pause right now. I don't want to let you off the hook. I want to invite you right now on behalf of God to be reconciled to God. Can we stop and pray? 
If that's you, and right now, as you're thinking about this and you're hearing this word of Christ, like we sang in this hymn earlier, you realize God is speaking to you and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive, that you hear God's voice in these words saying, come to me, receive me, trust in me, submit, call on my name. I want to lead you to do that right now. You can just silently pray in your heart along with me. Just to get, add your amen and agreement to this prayer if this is the desire of your heart. God, I acknowledge I'm broken. My heart is bent inward away from you. I sin. I'm a sinner. I understand. I don't have a leg to stand on before you, a holy God. Thank you, God, for making a way. Thank you for Jesus. I come to you now, taking you at your word, God, that this free gift of forgiveness only comes because Jesus bought it for me, and I receive it with open hands as a free gift. Acknowledging I bring nothing to this, would you forgive me in Jesus' name? Holy Spirit, I don't know who you are, but will you come into my life and help me to walk in a new way, in a new life? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Frequently on Sundays, as, as we're preaching the gospel, we, we do this. We invite you right here now to not walk out these doors, but to be reconciled to God. I want to ask you to do something if, that if you just prayed right now that we don't normally do, but I, that, but I want to do it to, to underscore the gospel call part of the message of the gospel. It's a call to identify yourself. Sometimes I think we can make faith such a private, personal thing. It's just this personal thing between me and God, and as long as that's fine. But remember what Paul had just said here in, in chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, what's the confess with your mouth part of it? It's identify publicly with Christ. Believe in your heart and then say with your life, he's Lord. I'm his. He bought me. I'm forgiven by his blood. And I'm walking in new life. There's a public confession and profession of that that I think is an important part of the response but I think if we stop short of and we don't open our mouth, we're so prone to talk ourselves out and go, no, that wasn't real. No, I don't believe that. No, and, and just sort of shrink away. And I want to ask you this morning because I want to pray for you and I want our church family to be able to come alongside you if you've done that. If this morning you called on Jesus' name in that way, I want to ask you to stand. And I know you're thinking, no way. Standing in front of, whatever, 300 people, 400 people, no way. I want to say this is the safest place you could ever stand for Christ. This room full of people who love Jesus and pray regularly that God would save people and make more and more people part of his family would love to pray for you. First service, one young woman stood up and immediately I saw another woman from our church make a beeline over and sit down next to her and pray for her. I want to ask you right now, if you did, to stand. I want to ask this morning, if, you're, if there's a sense of conviction of, okay, this is new for me, to not walk out of here and say, oh, well, why don't you seek someone out? There are people with green lanyards all around. Those are elders and leaders at our church, ushers out in the, in the foyer in our lobby. would love to answer further questions for you. I want to invite you to keep coming back and asking questions. I want to pause and just pray.
God, I pray that your, uh, your gospel would bear fruit here among us. Lord, thank you for the, for the young woman in our first service who, who called in your name. You forgave her sin. We thank you for that. God, I pray that you'd give us confidence in the message that you save through the word of Christ. And I pray that week in and week out here at Grace, as we do our very best to explain the word of Christ clearly and call people to it, that you would, day by day, week by week, draw people in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this last part about messengers. He uses a message, but God's also chosen to use messengers. He didn't just drop millions of copies of the scripture from the sky so that people can just pick them up and read them on their own. But look at what Paul says in chapter 10. Starting in 14, there's these questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? He assumes someone will be involved. Someone will preach, proclaim. That doesn't mean you get up here and there's an intro and three points or a conclusion, but you simply open your mouth and you talk and you proclaim Christ and you invite someone. Anyone can do that, anywhere. It's part of our gospel identity to be proclaimers. Paul uses the word ambassador. We are ambassadors for Christ. That means we represent the king to other people and we implore people on his behalf. The great thing about this is unlike earthly ambassadors who are representing when the king is absent, Christ our king is with us as we stand as ambassadors. And his appeal is coming through our lips, through the scriptures. And he calls us to be part of this. I wonder why. Why would God choose to to give his message to us? It seems pretty risky knowing us. I think this is one reason. I think there's a purpose in the plating. Plating. Food Network. I like Food Network. I like shows like Iron Chef Gauntlet, which this last couple of weeks I've been watching. And if you ever watch shows like that, the plating is important, right? The food essentially is what it's all about, but the plating can draw attention to and and magnify sort of the glory, point the glory to the food, right? So they're careful about how they plate. Listen to what Paul says about us as messengers. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's Jesus is Lord. It's like we're the plate. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God, uh, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's given us a message that's already transformed us and now we're proclaiming it. And here's what he says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul saw himself as a jar of clay. He would see us as jars of clay. We are broken. We've been redeemed by the same miracle of God making us alive together with Christ. And now he puts that message in our mouth. And as jars of clay, it draws attention to the glory and the power of God. I asked some people at Grace this last week with this little survey to answer three questions to tell me, who proclaimed Christ to you in your life? What scripture was pivotal in you coming to understanding uh, what Jesus had done for you? And and then what difference did it make? And that first question, I loved reading the responses. There wasn't a Billy Graham on the list. Nothing against Billy Graham. Billy Graham would consider himself a jar of clay that God has amazingly used. But my point is this. You know what the list was? My junior high friend. My mom. My high school basketball coach. My sister's boyfriend. My high school buddy in geometry class is when that happened. One person said, just jars of clay. 
displaying the surpassing power of God to save. Let's be jars of clay this summer. Let's be a people so entranced with the mercy that we've received that we are not content unless we're inviting other people into it. And I want to ask you a challenge as we go into the summer, a very concrete way. I want to ask you, who is your they? As he asks, how will they call on him? And how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how are they, they to hear? Who is your they? Who within your sphere of influence needs to hear and believe and be saved? If no one comes to your mind, that's what I want to challenge you this summer. Pray, God, would you put one person into my life? Would you help me go looking for one person for whom I could pray and I could bring the gospel to? If there's one person that's come to your mind or, or a few, write a name down here before we leave. And I want to ask you to do this this summer. Um, I got this from Randy, a church that he used to be at. They, they, they called it one one one. Every day at one o'clock, pray for one person for one minute. We can manage that, right? One minute to, to create a pattern of praying both for your own boldness and moving toward that person and that God would work in that person's heart to soften it and draw them to himself. Would you do that this summer? You know, I just said, let's be a people who are filled with joy of our salvation. You might still at the end of the service be struggling with that. And the good news is we're about to take the Lord's Supper, which is going to proclaim Christ to you one more time and remind you how good the good news is. So servers, why don't you come forward? Paul said the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. God, thank you for sending your son, not withholding your only son, but giving him, giving him up graciously for us all. Jesus, thank you for laying your, your life down willingly for us. And we thank you now that we can stand in grace not by our own works, but because of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.